0: Mark 14, verses 12 through 31. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? where I may eat the passover with my disciples and he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there prepare for us and the disciples set out and went out and went to the city and found it just as it had been told them and they prepared the passover And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, our, uh, our passage this morning, as we just read, is about a very famous meal. So as I was kind of thinking about this passage this week and reading about it, I couldn't help but think about some of the great meals that I've had in my life, okay? And I started thinking, what's the best meal I've ever had? What about you guys? What's the best meal that you have ever had? Mm-mm. Now, there's a few different ways to answer this question, right? I mean, one way you can answer this question is to say, well, what's What's physically like the best tasting food I've ever put into my mouth? So uh, Janet and I, when we lived in Chicago, Chicago is one of the great food cities in America. And uh, the West Loop, if you've you've ever been there, uh, Randolph Street, you can throw a rock and hit a Michelin star rated restaurant down that block. And we had a friend who took us out to one of these restaurants. It was the only Michelin star restaurant we've ever been to. We didn't pay. And this was... The best food I've ever put in my mouth. I mean, it was like normal food, but it was just like on a whole other level, okay? whole other level. Another way to answer that question is not directly about the food itself, but about the meal, the, the experience, the people you're with, the conversation that you have, maybe the moment that it represents in your life, something important that happened there. Was it the dinner where you got engaged, Was it a celebration meal after you bought your first house or got a job promotion or uh, found out you were pregnant with your first child? See, some meals are just meals. But some meals actually grow more important over time because of the moments that they represent in our lives. You import more meaning into the meal than just the food and the company and the conversation by telling and retelling the story. It becomes a key part Of the story of your life. Uh, Sometimes the story of a meal, what it represents, grows so large that it outgrows a single person's life or a single family's life, and it even comes to encompass the story of an entire country. Uh, We have one meal like that in America, at least one meal, that has sort of grown so large it's become an American institution, right? We're going to celebrate it next month on a Thursday, and we're all going to eat so much turkey that we're just going to roll over to the couch and watch two football games after it's over. It's all set up for us, right? This is an American meal. One meal long ago was so important, it was repeated again and again, and it became a story that actually more stories have joined over the years, and it's given meaning and shape um, in some ways to our country. What if a meal became so important and had such a rich history that it didn't just tell the story of a family or a country, but in that meal was the whole story of the world, was the whole story of what it means to be alive, to be a human, to live in this world. That's exactly what this meal in Mark 14 that we're looking at claims to be, all right? This is the night Jesus institutes a sacrament for his church for all time. And um, it's a family meal that orients and nourishes and tells the story of his people. Uh, um, an author I read put it like this. The Lord's Supper is the world in miniature. It has cosmic significance. Within it, we find clues to the meaning of all creation and all of history, to the nature of God, the nature of man, the mystery of the world, which is Christ. Through, though the table stands at the center, its effects stretch out, to the four corners of the earth. Okay, this is not an ordinary meal. I read the um, biography of Leonardo da Vinci this year, the new one by Walter Isaacson, and um, it was fascinating because, you know, one of his most famous paintings is The Last Supper. Um, And that painting is on the wall of a monastery in Milan, a church in Milan, and it is 30 feet wide and 15 feet tall, and it takes up the whole end of the room. I haven't been there to see it. Some of you probably have. Um, But da Vinci was a master at perspective. So within that painting, every line, every movement, all points to Christ, who's at the center of that painting. But what's so fascinating about da Vinci, and what was so kind of genius about this mural, was that he not only made everything in the painting point to Christ, but he actually figured out how to integrate the perspective from the room itself into the perspective of the painting. So the lines on the walls and the angles of the room actually integrate in with the painting and everything points to Christ who stands at the middle. See, da Vinci understood that this meal was not just one, a one-time event. It was actually, this meal is actually an invitation into the story that Jesus tells through this meal. A story that makes sense of our lives, our fears, our hopes, and our dreams. And through his painting, he was inviting those. It was also painted in a dining hall, by the way. It was the dining hall of the monastery. So as those monks sat down to eat, they were being invited into the meal that Jesus offers to the world to make sense of your story and mine. That's what this passage is doing. This is an invitation Into a meal with Jesus, into a story that he says makes sense of our life. This meal is connected to the past. It has a history. It's also connected to the future. It has a future story. And so, to really understand what we're talking about, we have to trace the history of this meal through time to know the meal before it and know the meal that will come after it. So, how we're going to do this this morning is we're going to look at the first Passover, we're going to look at the Last Supper. And then we're going to look at the future feast that Jesus will set for his followers. Uh, So, the first Passover. In the first five verses of this story, Mark mentions the Passover four different times. Mark is going out of his way to make sure that his readers understand that the context of the meal Jesus is about to eat um, has a history. He wants us to know that this is not a one-time event but has it's a meal with a long and important meaning. What, what was the Passover meal? What was that meal meant to celebrate? The Passover meal was and still is the central celebration of Jewish life. This meal was um, a remembrance of God's defining act of salvation for the entire Israelite community. Uh, the entire nation of Israel, the Jewish people, were enslaved to the Egyptians. If you remember back... To end of Genesis, beginning of Exodus, they had grown into a country, a nation, but they were enslaved under Pharaoh and he was using their labor to make bricks for his major building projects, the pyramids and all these kinds of things. And God calls a man, Moses, to lead his people out of that slavery and into freedom and into a promised land. Okay, So Moses gets this call from God, lead my people out. Moses brings that message to Pharaoh. Okay, And you want to know what Pharaoh says in response to that news? This is what he says in Exodus 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let your people Go. Well, in response to Pharaoh, God kindly introduces himself, okay? He lets him know who he's dealing with, and he does this by systematically showing that Pharaoh and all the gods that the Egyptians worship. They're not actually gods, that they're following that this is false worship, these are idols, and the gods they think are gods are not gods, and he is going to introduce them to the one true God of heaven. What happens next we know is the ten plagues, but really it's confrontations between the one true God in heaven and the false gods that make up the worship of the Egyptians. So, for example, the Egyptians worship a frog god named Heget, okay? They worshipped frogs. Uh, in the second plague, God essentially says to the Egyptians, Oh, you want some frogs? Oh, I'll, I'll give you some frogs. Frogs piled up in the land so high that they had to pile them up, and the whole land stank from the amount of frogs that God sent to this, um, this country. The true creator, he was saying, was revealing who was truly in control. The ninth plague, the final confrontation... The most powerful and revered god of the Egyptians was the sun god, Ra. And you know what God did to the sun god? He just flipped the switch. And for three days, there was darkness all over the land. A darkness that the text says that that could be felt. It was so thick. You see, the true god, the creator, The king was making himself available to the Egyptians. He was confronting their false worship and he was giving them an opportunity to repent and to come to him in faith and to worship the one who actually reigns over all things. But their hearts remained hard. And finally, God's full justice and his full judgment falls on this rebellious land. God sends an angel of judgment to sweep over the Egyptians, and kill the firstborn son in every house in the entire country. This is the 10th plague. But again, even to the end, God's grace is always, always available. And he provides a way through this judgment for Egyptians and Israelites alike. Okay? If you take shelter in a house, he said, which has killed an innocent lamb, and you've smeared the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of your house, the whole house will be spared. It's a pathway through judgment forged by the life of an innocent substitute. It's a pathway through God's justice into freedom and life and into a new promised land. What it is is a pathway of grace, unearned, undeserved, paid for by the life of another. Because here's the thing about that final plague, about um, the, the Passover night. This judgment, it fell on everyone living in the land, Uh, There was no exception. Many of the plagues, one through nine, fell on just the Egyptians and the Israelites who lived in a land over here called Goshen were kind of spared from some of it. But this one, the final one, the full justice of God applies to everybody equally. Men and women in that land, rich and poor, didn't matter if you were Jewish or Egyptian, it didn't matter if you were a virtuous, upstanding citizen, a leader of your people, or an unreputable, hedonistic, Sinful, selfish person, all equally deserve to stand under the justice of God that night because all of us do what the Egyptians had been doing for centuries, don't we? All of us find ourselves worshiping and seeking gods, little gods, mini gods, false gods, idols, besides the one true king. We're all looking to things to make sense of and give hope to and bring joy and fullness to our life besides the source of joy itself. We've all run from the source of life, looking for joy anywhere else. The problem is when you run from life, you run towards death. And that is what happened that night. Being an Israelite, a member of God's chosen nation, the people who possessed the great promises of God, that didn't protect them from God's justice that night. They weren't saved by their race or their skin color or their language. The only thing that made any difference that night was whether you were sheltered by the blood of a lamb. And then the judgment of God passed over you. And so every Jewish family, every Egyptian family, that decided to take a chance on God's plan... And I like to think there were some because there were some signs in the Old Testament there that some of them were starting to believe and get it and come to know, okay, wait, I'm dealing with something more powerful here than a frog god, right? I, I, I think that some Egyptians maybe um, took a chance on it. Anyone who sat down to a meal of roast lamb that night were passed over and walked out of slavery into life and freedom and the promised land that awaited them on the other side. Everything about the relationship that God's people had with him was based on this event of salvation from slavery to freedom through grace alone. And that first Passover meal they ate became an institution. It became a way to remember their identity of who they are, who God is, and how that relationship works. All right, that's what happened in the first meal. Fast forward a few hundred years to this scene in Mark 14. Jesus is sitting down to celebrate this defining Passover meal with his disciples to remember and celebrate that path of salvation that God offers to his people. And the only thing is, as they start to celebrate it, this particular meal starts to go a little a little wonky. Okay, Jesus starts to go off script a little bit, and that is strange to say the least. Traditionally, the Passover meal followed a very clear structure and progression. There were four glasses of wine that the host would serve throughout the meal, and at those, um, after each of those glasses, they would um, the host would sort of explain and unpack one of the great promises that God gives to his people. The host of the meal would explain these, and as Jesus progresses through the meal, he starts to go off script. He doesn't stay on track. This is concerning. It's actually more than concerning. It's shocking. It's something like um, changing changing the pattern of the Passover meal is something like standing up before the Super Bowl and changing the words of the Star Spangled Banner. Okay, You can't do that. Like, like, no one gave you the right to change those words. That's an institution, and you're not allowed to mess with it. But here is Jesus starting to tinker and mess with this institution that has defined the identity of God's people for centuries. After the third cup of wine, towards the end of the meal, normally the host would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. But at this Passover meal... Jesus departs from the script, and in verse 22 of chapter 14, we read, "'Take, this is my body.'" Instead of looking backward in history to the defining moment of salvation for an entire nation, Jesus has his disciples look to him in the present, in the flesh, as the defining moment of salvation for the entire world.'" This bread used to represent the suffering of our people, and he says now it represents the suffering I'm about to undergo for you on the cross. This wine used to represent the blood that forged a path for us through justice into freedom and life, and now I'm telling you it's my blood of the new covenant which is going to forge a path for everyone who looks to me in faith for the rest of time. This is unsettling, but maybe the most shocking difference between this Passover meal and the one that ever came before it in history is that nowhere does Mark or any of the other three gospel authors say that there was a main course served at this meal. Um, There was no lamb on this table, and this is strange, but what it should do is it should start to help us answer a question that we should all probably have been asking for a while now since I started this story, and that is this. Going way back to the first Passover meal, how in the world did the blood of a little lamb do anything, anything, to to quench the justice of God as it rolled through town? A pastor in New York that I really appreciate, a guy named Tim Keller, put it this way. Why in the world would the sacrifice of a woolly little quadruped exempt you from God's justice? Now, that's a fair question, right? Like, what does a little furry mammal have anything to do with our standing uh, before the holy God of creation? The answer, of course, is it didn't. It couldn't. It has nothing to do with addressing the justice of God. Not really, not in any kind of deep way. That was always a sign, an arrow, that meant to point to the real thing. And at this meal, Jesus is finally announcing that he's the real thing. There was no lamb on the table that night when Jesus met with his disciples for his last supper because the lamb was sitting at the table with them. And as John the Baptist introduced Jesus at the very beginning of his ministry, he said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, in this meal, Jesus is explaining to his disciples what his death on the cross in just a matter of hours means. This is the purpose of his death. In fact, it's the whole purpose of his arrival and his life on earth. This is the entire purpose of Jesus' mission. Um, There's a a plane crash uh, years ago, 1987, um, and it was tragic. Um, flight Northwest Flight 225 left Tempe, Arizona and crashed into an interstate highway, killing almost everyone on board, except for one little girl. One little girl walked away from this plane crash. Her name was Cecilia. And... Um, She didn't have uh, barely a scratch on her. She was dazed, of course, but um, the police didn't think that she originally had come out of the plane. They thought she was a bystander on the highway because of, I mean, this was awful, and everyone on the plane had died, and she had hardly a scratch on her, and they couldn't put two and two together, but they checked the flight manifest, and sure enough, she had been on that plane. So they started to figure out what happened. They started to ask her questions, and as the plane had taken off, They heard a loud bang, the cabin filled with smoke, everything started to go bad, and everybody knew they were going down. And right before impact, apparently Cecilia's mom had unbuckled her seatbelt and crawled on top of her and held her in between... Sorry. She had held her in between the chair and her own body as they crashed into the ground. And that little girl walked out of that crash unscathed. She walked out unscathed because why? Because her mom took the blows that she deserved that were coming her way and protected her from them. And she walked through that carnage, through that chaos and out the other side into life. This is what Jesus has done for us when he died on the cross. He wrapped us in a cocoon. He took the blows that we deserve, that we had coming, our standing, the justice of God, the standing before a righteous God. He took that for us so that his children could walk out the other side of death and live and have freedom and have joy and walk into the promised land. Christ's death moves us from slavery into freedom. It moves us from condemnation into forgiveness and purity and holiness and life. He moves us from homelessness into adoption into his family. He moves us from fear into joy. All of that through the pathway that he forged with his own blood as he died on the cross. He is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That is the invitation of this meal. That's the invitation offered to you to step into the story and receive those gifts that he offers to his people. So, last question. Why does Jesus have to end things? I mean, that's an incredible invitation, okay? That's an invitation all of us should just stop and say yes to right now. Why does he go on um, to end this on such a discouraging note. Did you notice that? That This passage ends with Jesus' sure words that all of his disciples will walk away and abandon him and deny him within hours of an invitation to this meal. Verse 27, you will fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they fall away, I will not. Jesus said, truly I tell you, this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. They all said the same. Why does Jesus end on such a sour prediction after having just given them such an encouraging, life-giving offer of salvation? And here's the answer. I actually don't think this is a discouraging note. I think this is one of the most encouraging things that the followers of Jesus can ever hear. It turns out, of course, Jesus is entirely right in his prediction. Shocker, right? Um, Peter does deny him three times before the end of this night. All of his disciples and followers walk away from him. Um, even after all he's offered them, even after all their bravado, even after all their assurance that they'll stick with him through anything, their faith and their courage still falters, Right? Their faith is still incomplete. Belief in his promises will be an on-again, off-again thing for them and for us for the rest of their lives. But none of that stopped Jesus from giving them these gifts. None of that stopped Jesus from going to the cross on their behalf. Do you see how encouraging that is? How deeply loving that is? The promises Jesus pours out on his people have nothing to do with, with how well we receive them or how well we use them once we've been given them. His promises are his promises. He knows our faith will wane. He knows we'll um, deny him. He knows that we'll falter, but he promises to sit with them again at the end of all things, at another meal when he returns. Verse 25, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God with you. You will be scattered, but our relationship will be restored. You will deny him, but he will not let you fall away. Your faith will falter. You will sin. The old habits of our rebellion, that tendency to look to things outside of God for meaning and joy and satisfaction, our hearts will continue to do that, but he will never give up on us. None of this will stop Jesus from pouring out his love and his grace on you and me. This meal, as we said in the beginning, as Leonardo da Vinci painted it to be on the walls of a monastery, is an invitation to step into this story that Jesus tells about the world. It's an invitation to take an honest assessment of our own hearts and go to God in repentance. It's, a, it's an invitation um, to receive his gift of grace again. You may have been a Christian for a long, long time. Or you may be here today considering what it means to follow Jesus. This is an opportunity for all of us to again accept the story and the pathway of his grace. It's an invitation to enter his story of salvation, to be nourished here today by his love and to be secured in God's love forever. That's a great invitation. This is a great meal. This is not going to be the best tasting meal that you ever have in your life, I promise. Okay? There are better tasting meals than this one. But this is the most important meal any of us will sit down to until that day when we meet Jesus again. So let's do that now. To be nourished by a meal, you've got to eat it. Okay? You can't just look at it, you can't just think about it, you can't contemplate it. It's not an idea. A meal is a thing. And that's part of the reason why I like that we stand up and come forward here at Grace. We, with our bodies, we get up and we come to receive the body and the blood of Jesus on our behalf. Um, we come for his nourishment and we come to continue to grow in our faith in him. This is an invitation to the past grace that Jesus gave us on the cross, to the present grace he gives us as he nourishes our faith at this table, and to the future grace as we look forward to the day where we will sit down with him again in heaven forever, and all sin and evil has been banished from the world. The way we celebrate this meal at Grace is you'll come down the side aisles. There'll be both bread and bread. Uh, both wine and juice available for you. The bread is gluten-free. Please take those elements with you back to your seat, and we'll all eat together as one family. If you look to Jesus alone for your, your hope and your salvation, your meaning in life, this table is set for you. It doesn't have to be perfect faith. It can be faltering faith. It's just got to be faith, all right? Just enough to get out of your chair and come on down and receive the gifts that are present at this meal. The night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Drink of it. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again and we meet with him in glory. Heavenly Father, thank you for this meal Thank you for setting this table of grace for your people. Thank you that we are safe in you and that you will hold us as we look to you in trust and belief. Help our hearts receive and grow bigger to trust in your promises. We love you. Amen.